work, an exhibition curated by artist Simon Denny. Following the show's theme, the panel you are about to hear brought together three people working at the intersection of tech and art, Jaya Clara Brecca, Ruth Catlow, and Kia Kreutler, who share a deep interest in the potential of blockchain structures no matter what the markets think. This recording has been made possible by the Schinkel Pavilion, facilitated by Anina Herzer, Annika Kuhlman, and Nina Pohl and has been edited by New Models for the at-home podcast listeners ease. The panel was moderated by New Models co-founder, Caroline Busta. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for coming to this event. This will be the final event of Proof of Work, which is an exhibition that I co-curated with many people, some of which are in the room. But I will say a big thank you to the institution for everything, including this talk, and thank you very much to our four speakers who have mostly traveled to be here. But this panel represents for me a kind of a fantasy lineup of people speaking on this topic. So I couldn't imagine a better situation than we have today. So thank you very much, everybody, for being here, and thank you very much to the speakers. Well, thanks to Simon, the Schinkel, Annika, Anina, everybody who is, and, and everyone here who's traveled to, to be a part of this. So since it's 73, 730 billion euro peak in January of 2018, the crypto market has contracted nearly 70%, right? That said, there's still a great number of people, probably several people in this room, who are still deeply involved with blockchain and what it's doing. So the purpose of this panel in broad strokes is to help us refocus the narrative. First, we're going to give some background on what blockchain is, what its origin story is, and where people embedded in this space see it going. And I know for a lot of you, that's going to seem like building blocks that you've already well established, but I think there's so many different narratives of what blockchain is to different people, and there's so many different origin stories that it might be useful to just set some working definitions. But luckily, we have three incredibly smart and knowledgeable speakers with us today, Daya Clara Becca, Kia Kreutler, and Ruth Catlow. So I'm going to let them introduce themselves because they're all working on a thousand different projects and I'd rather they highlight the one that's most interesting to them right this minute. So Jaya, do you want to start? Hello everyone. Hi. Um, yeah, so my name is Jaya. I am uh, deep in finishing a PhD right now, which is a political analysis of a few different blockchain protocols, or more precisely, it's a way to think about the blockchain clearly politically and develop some ideas around something called uh, political cryptoeconomics. I'm affiliated with Durham University Geography Department. I'm also affiliated with UCL Computer Sciences Department, where I'm working on a project called NextSleep, which is a project on decentralized privacy-aware technologies more generally. And then I work sometimes with a group called the Research Institute for Future Cryptoeconomics in Vienna, and also B9 Lab in London, which is a blockchain uh, training academy, and I work with them on their kind of ethics stuff. So that's kind of my spread. <laughs> So I'm Kia. I work at Gnosis. Are people familiar with Gnosis, Augur, prediction market platforms? You might have heard of this thing called Augur that launched earlier this year. And it's the idea that you can make the outcome of future events tradable. And there can be a semantic kind of tokenized version of future events. Gnosis is a company that originally set out to do a prediction market platform precisely for this. And then realized that there are some kind of challenges about a tokenized future. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> we'll get to all of the other challenges, but I'll just highlight one that's like <laughs> we probably won't get to is um, if a lot of individual assets are tokenized, um, how do you kind of trade them amongst each other? That's incredibly 
relatively low liquidity. Like, who says that, like, the token that I have, my Kia token, like, you want to trade that? And how do you actually exchange goods? So Gnosis is working at a decentralized exchange to help trade tokens better. And myself, I would say um, I formerly kind of practice as an artist, background in philosophy as well. I've worked on many different organizational projects, to name a few, on Monastery. There was also an AR game for urban research and alternative economics called Patternist that I worked on. So I've kind of recently in the last year, having a kind of deeply rooted in the cultural sphere, now working in a blockchain company, I really see it as a realm for exploration and despite market prices, something that's very much here to stay as a technology. Hi everyone, I'm Ruth, I'm an artist and co-founder of Furtherfield. We're an organisation that does arts, kind of critical, ask critical questions in arts and tech practice. Furtherfield's based in London, we have two venues, so we have lab space and a gallery in the heart of a North London park. That's very important to us. It means that we are constantly have a responsibility to be able to talk to people in ways that make sense to them, which when you're working with blockchain isn't always very easy. We started in the mid-90s when the web, before the web centralised. So I got very confused uh, like <laughs> last year when people started talking about the decentralised web. I kind of like, oh, hang on a minute, what happened? <laughs> OK, so I grew up with artists, techies and activists who were all about the political and emancipatory opportunities offered by uh, decentralisation and the decentralised web and then obviously we had this massive kind of new monopolies forming in the web and now we have the re-decentralization of the web which is very exciting to me so we're now we're just about to open the decentralized arts lab which is called decal which lives everywhere and it's for kind of three main areas we're looking at what collecting 21st century art forms might look like so these are art forms that aren't just objects to be acquired digital or physical transnational arts infrastructure for collaboration and just general systems literacy so hosting things that people can get involved in okay super i think the the whole question of artists and blockchain is one that i want to really probe but uh so cool thank you for this micro backgrounds jaya maybe you can enter in here and say why we see the first like proof of concept blockchain operative in the mid to late audies but why was this such an important concept at this time? Why did it take hold at the time? And what are some of the, what's the headspace that, that sort of it's rooted in? What are the fantasies, maybe 80s, 90s, decentralized fantasies that it's rooted in? Why, why did it take hold when it took hold? Like a bit of an obsession of mine, like ever since I started to do like research in this space, was to try and find out a little bit more in detail, you know, words, when we say words like decentralization, autonomy, trust, trustlessness, these are very broad words and they come with a lot of different connotations. And what I, part of the work that I wanted to do was to try and trace back or trace through what exact understanding of these words are being encoded in these technologies and why. This is a chapter that I'm working on right now in my PhD, so I'm very happy to share this new insight that I have with all of you. But I kind of came across, I was reading a paper which some friends of mine wrote, which is a fantastic kind of technical run through of the past 15 years of decentralized uh, technologies. And it kind of looks at uh, BitTorrent in relation to Tor and in relation to Bitcoin. And it kind of, it was this, this aha moment for me where I was like, all of a sudden, like, all right, all these things start to fall into place. You know, we basically, if you look at the kind of history in the 90s of what decentralized technologies were used for, 
they were used for like as very specific strategies to circumvent authorities. And it was it was literally you'd have like okay a file sharing network like Napster for example you're sharing music this kind of thing the person running it gets arrested uh, their servers get seized it's shut down and then you have these decentralized technologies that get created as a way to keep the systems running regardless of how many people or who gets arrested regardless of what servers get seized the system will continue to run and people will still be able to access the files that they want to access and so on so it was it's a it's an understanding of decentralization which is literally how to circumvent authorities and it's with very specific authorities in mind it, it was about censorship really it was about to, you know trying to kind of defeat censorship trying to defeat uh, copyright systems also there was a very strong critique of copyright and intellectual property which is an un another interesting historical thing that um, I think we could discuss and how that relates or how that's changed since uh, Bitcoin you know if we take the, these three words just decentralization authority and trust you know so you have decentralization used as a specific strategy to circumvent authorities authorities understood as someone that are looking to shut down the system and that then got expanded to include basically an authority is any aspect of the system that the system depends on so if the system depends on a particular node a particular person a particular server or whatever that server is essentially or that person is essentially an authority and so the idea of creating a trustless system was the idea of getting rid of authorities so a trustless system is a, the idea of a decentralized system where there is no authority that can be targeted and that will therefore shut down the system Okay, skeptical question, right? What is the greatest thing that blockchain has done so far, in your opinion, aside from the democratization of precisely the same speculative pyramid logic of the traditional financial schemes that it had initially aimed to circumvent? And I know that's an annoying question. I know that's probably the question on the street. For me, it's about kind of money and finance literacy, mm -hmm. especially in relation to the arts. The relationship between art and finance is really weird. And this space has enabled us to kind of cr crack it open mm, and totally. have a really interesting think about that. Totally. That's totally valid. I want to get back to that in a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mine is actually quite similar just for this context. I would say um, the fact that conversations like this are happening mm -hmm. is a really amazing thing. And I always joke it like made bureaucracy cool for the first time. <laughs> um, so like people are excited to talk about governance, bureaucracy, accounting. Well, Trump too had a, something to do with that. But. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but just these sorts of, the fact that we can have these conversations with a much broader group of people and I feel like would have been interested 10 years ago. And secondarily, it's just there are still a lot of open source projects that are really well funded and that's historically very new right, um, and they don't right. have they don't have kind of um, private stakeholders in the normal model so that's super exciting right we were talking to somebody about climate change yesterday and she said you know one of the problems we're having is that what's sexy is something that's explore exploratory or that something that's breaking new ground going to Mars is exciting it's not that exciting to get people behind reforestation yeah. right and so maybe there's a correlation here where the exciting part of blockchain's next stage is actually something that's not so not like crazy innovation but more like dedicated steady work in certain areas till the breakthroughs are actually possible i don't know if that if you would agree with that or not yeah for sure um and there was also just another thing that i wanted to mention that i forgot a minute ago which is so it's blockchain brings up a lot of important questions but there's a there's a problem with that too in that it seems like a system where you can design your way out of a lot of important questions and mm -hmm. there's a there's a temptation to kind of like develop these complete systems fixes to things that tend to be a lot messier than that um, in real life. 
So it's kind of like this strange, like on the one hand, it allows us to talk through a lot of important things around power, governance, money. But sometimes like there is a fascination to try and design like the perfect protocol that's going to solve all of those problems. Um, and that's something that like I think has it started to shift now in the in the industry and it's, it's things are starting to get a bit more kind of like fine grained, which is a nice Right, because you know we have three artists here who are also somewhat experts in blockchain development, and we know that you know a lot of artists, maybe more than ever, as the gallery system has changed, if not imploded in some areas, are super precarious. And so when you say what can an artist do in the blockchain, I mean you're like use it to learn how to invest so that you can buy real estate, so that you can actually have a stable IRL space, right? I mean I don't know, but maybe maybe we could talk a little bit um, for a second about like. Like what artists can do in this space from a really pragmatic point of view. Like you guys are involved in really cool projects that you know deal with blockchain systems, but in, in maybe a more pragmatic, how do you reinforce IRL communities? I mean, definitely Ruth 90s logic of decentralization. How can artists like monopoly bust using the blockchain? How can they reinforce anarchist systems outside of the blockchain? Or wh where do you think the interesting conversation is in, in, in this thread? Oh, I'm sorry, but there isn't an easy answer to this question. No, there's not. Okay. There's, I can't. I, I really examples. wish I could point at something and go, that's the one. But that is, I mean, I've just been to the States. There's a community of people who are involved in the kind of digital collectible scene. Um, and I know some of them are here too. And there's the kind of tokenization of the artwork and the idea of a kind of decentralized markets for art. And there is a lot of excitement around this this work, which I don't share. Neither. We can't get into it. <laughs> yeah. Because um, it needs a human connection. Yes, but I mean, I, but I do squat and sometimes participate in a number of telegram groups mm. around this. And there is, you know, it's a real thing. There's a real sense of community. It's quite meme-y. Uh, if you like memes, it's a good scene for you. And there, there's, there's, you know, it's jokes, there's fun, it's fine, but it isn't exciting. So where's the desire? Like, where is the desire thread? Where is the, like, the lust in that? Where does it come from? Well, I think I, as a grumpy European, I have, I think Americans can have a kind of different approach to money. Money <laughs> itself has a libidinal quality to mm, it. True, right. So okay. I think that's what I see a little bit driving the rare scene, mm. and I don't relate to it. Mm -hmm. The thing is, it's, I have found it really, really hard and sometimes very boring to get my head around this space. And therefore, I'm looking at artists who are working with this. So we made this book, Artists Rethinking the Blockchain, and we focused on docu documentations of certain artworks and there were some fictions. And this is where it starts to get really great because you've got artists who are thinking about how the decentralizing and incentivizing kind of capacity of the blockchains, if we step aside from the technical barriers that we face, which are many, like what new political systems might we have in place? And often we like to think of the worst thing that can happen. And sometimes thinking of the worst thing that can happen gives you a, can, it just opens up the imaginative space. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is, this is really interesting. So artists can bring some negativity to these narratives. Exactly, and that's, that's really, really important. important. It's really that's important. Really, I mean, also, when we, when we think of utopic, like, you know, squats, in every squat there is such dystopia. You're living in, like, post-capitalism. You're living in, like, a, a post-collapse society. But so the negativity is there. And I don't know, maybe Jaya or... Either of you, but like maybe this is also. Can some I say one more yeah, thing? Please, so yeah. the, uh, I've had a recent realization. So we've ha we've got a project that's w that 
I think we had a bit of an epiphany in the last month or so of a project that might just work. It's taken a really long time. And it's, a, it's something that would allow us to make the connection between our international, our international networks of artists and techies and thinkers and the people who are involved with on the ground. And it's a project that essentially allows stakeholders within a cultural community to become visible to each other through a kind of governance mm. thing. Sounds really boring. But I was excited because I can actually start to see how this might be useful. We can start to make all these different elements of our community visible to each other in a transparent way. They can become more involved. Be specific. In Okay, so we are going to run votes on the blockchain using a quadratic voting system, which is more information than we need to talk about, that allow people to express both preference and intensity of preference around a range of questions that we will ask them about both the programme and about how we fund ourselves. So it's allowing people to have a much more granular engagement across all the generations of people that we've worked with. But I've been really focused on this and getting increasingly tense about the possibility that I might just really antagonise everyone. And then I realised, so listening to Jaya, I realised that the problem was that I'd been focusing on the mechanism. And you can really get to the point where you're trying to hone the mechanism so much to make it so that it can't be gamed or it can't be flipped or something horrible can't happen, that you end up kind of focusing on the splinter and forgetting about the forest. Uh -huh. And I think that that's the kind of... I think this is the space that we're all in now where we need to remember that we're dealing with living systems. And if we're not dealing with living systems, then it's boring and we should forget. I mean, when they people would say this past year, I mean, I said this to you before, Kia, at this DAP conference, the Cambrian explosion of, like, decentralized apps. And I'm like, oh, my God, all this talk of the Cambrian explosion, but we're having a total implosion of biodiversity in IRL space. So, like, there needs to be some kind of correlation. Living systems um, are somehow missing from this equation. And, and also, yeah. maybe also if you want to speak about Futarchy or some of this also yeah. in this space. So. Yeah. Well, I would just add, um, kind of obliquely, answering what the arts can do very quickly. I also think a lot about institution building just as a practice and as an artistic practice and as an organizational kind of practice stretching from I think like 70s conceptual work to the present and I think that a lot of kind of blockchain companies are in the space to become something like community governed institutions and to actually be in the space to like pass generate generational knowledge on from one to the next. And I think in terms of artists need new institutions, there is really difficult funding models. There are really different, difficult kind of resale models. Just the whole kind of blue chip gallery system is really broken and really doesn't benefit artists. So what can blockchain do in terms of trying to create? I think it's definitely aims too high to build a new society or anything, but I do think we'll have kind of protocols as institution building um, in the future and building equitable systems into those protocols, but also just having fun with them. and. Um, really experimenting and doing like now is the time to like try out like slightly weirder things because there's not so much attention on such it such as can you just um, give an example so like with kind of like a group of friends if you want to kind of collectively own something or if you want to try to set up say something like a small scale school to be able to house that kind of within a blockchain supported system but also to be able to govern it transparently or otherwise but also just use the kind of imaginary space that it opens up and build that into the kind of blockchain company as institution now does That's, that make yeah, sense? Yeah, that does. That that um, makes that makes sense. Do you want to maybe add to this and from sort of the '90s anarchist yeah. angle? <laughs> Well, again, maybe just as a like clarifying concepts a bit and maybe opening up a bit of kind of tensions. Okay, when we look at words like decentralization and autonomy, politically and socially speaking, usually that has to do with somehow kind of taking 
that people feel they have more control over things that affect them in their lives. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing about like blockchain systems, things like smart contracts, DAOs, this kind of thing, is that they somehow promise both, right? So they promise both to be systems that are out of our control because they're supposed to be out of the control of anybody because otherwise they could be stopped and that defeats the entire purpose of having a kind of decentralized system. And on the other hand, they promise the ability that we are able to develop our own governance systems from scratch how, however we want them to be and design them um, in the ways that we want them to be. Our governance systems, token systems, you name it. And so I think that's like an interesting kind of tension. Yeah, definitely interesting. I mean, also in light of the past year where we've been fantasizing about the fracturing of the major stacks, like what would happen if Facebook somehow looked different? What would happen if Amazon looked different? And I wonder in your experience, I mean, is there a, a is there a part of a conversation where people are saying, yes, actually, what if we restructured Facebook around some kind of more decentralized system? So I don't even know what that would look like. I'm really kind of vamping with this idea. But like, is that practically possible to have a Facebook where communities hold the wealth as opposed to Zuckerberg, where attention value is decentralized? Like, what can you guys sketch out if that is something that you're talking about, what it looks like? I mean, absolutely, like that is the kind of, it, it's like one of the core kind of use cases, let's say, of the space is to decentralize the kind of big platforms that are there. And that's another kind of piece of interesting kind of work that I think needs to be done is to carve out what are the exact differences, you know, because we talk about disintermediation of things like Facebook, for example, and then you have these protocols that come about that are, that are supposed to do that. And the protocols themselves are at the moment in a kind of bit of a kind of battle for monopoly in a sense oh, right. too. And so, there's, so there is this interesting question of like, do we get rid of application layer centralization just to replace it with protocol layer centralization? Um, and what does disintermediation mean exactly? I mean, what is the aim of disintermediation in this space? Say that word again, sorry. Disintermediation, so getting rid of the, the mediators. Uh -huh. Um, getting rid of the, the, the middleman, getting rid of the, you know. And so there's a lot, I think there's a lot of clarification that needs to be done around what is the, what is the, the exact intention there. I mean, the, the main thing is the business model. The main thing is like disintermediating a kind of like surveillance-based business model that requires, you know, monopolies of networks and so on and replace that with basically the possibility that each of us kind of holds our own data and holds the value of that data or has control over that in some sense. But there is, there is work to be done around how that's actually going to play out. And, and again, it comes back to this question of the tension between promising systems that are out of control at the same time as promising systems that give you more control. Mm -hmm. So one thing is that, okay, you have... There, there is this idea that you can gain more control over your own personal data and we can develop systems in this kind of a way. But the fine-grained kind of like design of what aspects of your data is actually in your control, what aspects of that data is in, in kind of community control, what aspects of that data is immutable on a chain that you have no control over because it must be so in order for a currency system to work or whatever else. Those are like, those are really, really quite sensitive questions. And, and now we're just talking about ownership and business models and e economics when it comes to questions of privacy. I mean, right, and that's layer. a whole other yeah. layer. And that's also something that like, what aspects need to be private? What aspects need to be transparent? You know, and again, if we go back to the early history, this stuff was obvious because it was like, we, there, we knew who the authorities were right. and we were the pirates and we were gonna circumvent the authorities by developing these peer-to-peer -peer systems, blah, blah. And then now, as this proposition became generalized into a kind of general political idea... Four-dimensional chess. Yeah, then it's like, okay, so what, who exactly 
are, are the authorities? Who, what exactly needs to be transparent? Who are the powerful? What should be private? What should be, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, I remember you mentioned like the kind of, I think it was at DAPCON, <laughs> um, the, uh, the kind of cypherpunk idea of, um, you know, anonymity as affordance to kind of your either class position or otherwise. Um, so anonymity to those who are kind of like to the powerful, full transparency would yeah. be the kind of graded thing. And I think that's really good. But then how do you enforce that? What's like the TCR to have like of the most powerful people? And just also privacy, we have to touch on at some point. Maybe yeah. here isn't yeah. the point. But there are things just to go back to the question as well, like Brave Browser, you can already download it today. That's um, seeks to subvert kind of advertising business models. Say by that again, what browser? Brave Browser. Um, <laughs> and there are things of like, you know, we can make a Facebook coin and we can make a new platform and everybody gets, you know, paid via their Facebook coin. Isn't that so cool? And I'm like, yeah, we definitely need to fix these platforms. They really suck. But also, like, what's the desire line towards creating these new platforms? And how do you get that actual network adoption? And how do you make it fun? And what's, where's the transgressiveness about that? To me, that's what I feel like is actually the thing that's lacking the most. Totally. Yeah, we just need something that's like a little bit more exciting because right now um, on kind of more leftist political sides, like we really need something like that. We can't just have like a, a like globe on your tote bag that's like ice support I'm anti-climate change you know? <laughs> yeah I don't know <laughs> but we need to like ideate about the desire lines um, alongside the tech because the tech is already there and the desire lines have to come out of this paternalistic big tech rounded corner safe not, not safe spaces in the way it's been used unless you, like physically you can't hurt yourself or type spaces it needs to it needs to feel like you're you're, you're somehow messing this with the system I think yeah. uh, although I don't know I mean it seems like China with all of its authoritarianism seems to be handling um, comms more effectively than we are in the United States right now, so someone could probably say the opposite. But I, I wonder also, so we have this Pareto principle of the 80-20, the 20% the seem to have power over the 80 or seem to end up controlling things inevitably, and the dream of blockchain seems to be to have a more egalitarian, a more equal spread, a more communist-looking distribution of resources. I mean, because that was obviously a problem. Last year, the whales came in, and they kind of controlled the market. Is there a discussion of, of, of how to mitigate that or how to prevent these, uh, the, you know, because the blockchain is still happening under capitalism. It's still, that's, you know, this is still like the conditions we're living in. What is some of the discussion around changing that system or disrupting it? Because that seems to me an exciting, kind of exciting desire line to somehow break into that model. Yeah. Well, I'm working on this thing called DAO Zero. <laughs> um, so it's like DAO is Decentralized Autonomous Organization. So you can basically think of it kind of like an organization in code where, other, where people can participate and it's ideally permissionless so anyone could participate if they have the requisite token. But DAO Zero is aiming to be like a loosely kind of connected federated groups of these DAOs to be able to set best practices for initial distribution of funds. So to me, that's the thing that kind of went incredibly wrong. Even though it was permissionless, it still ended up with certain power law of distribution. So how do you get kind of meta working groups that say like, we think these are the best practices for how you identify stakeholders given a certain topic within an organization. And based on your identification of these stakeholders, this is how you should di distribute things like voting rights or participation. But to have like groups of actually like public um, figures be able to make these 
statements and to kind of get them all together and make these statements is one of the ways I think going ahead that could fix it a little bit. So DAO Zero is trying to do that. We'll see if it works at all. In order to have do something exciting, you need to understand what it is you're trying to achieve politically. Mm -hmm. And I think in the space, blockchain is not anti-capitalist. Yeah, it's not like a project that came about to defeat capitalism in, in yeah. any way whatsoever. <laughs> libertarian project. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very mixed. I, I, it is libertarian in some senses, but it's also just, it's computational. You know, right. it's, it's a network computational solution to a set of like strategic problems that people were facing. And that kind of resonated with a lot of different kinds of politics. And uh, I think that's kind of important to note. But so I think like in order to do something exciting, there, you know, you need to have a clear I, understanding sure. what, it is, yeah, what it is that you're trying to achieve politically. So because it comes out of network computation, really, that's the consensus of the, the broad kind of network or assemblage, if you want. Like, that's like what people come together around, right? And then you have like lots of different politics, lots of different economic ideas and whatever else playing out within that general space, which also means that because of that, like when you look at something like concentration of wealth, there is like certain ways you can critique it within the space that has to do with decentralization or centralization mm -hmm. and um, that has to do with network security properties mm -hmm. primarily, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not a critique of capitalism. It's not a critique of centralization of wealth as such. It's not a critique of accumulation of wealth in any kind of way. It's a critique of the fact that centralization of wealth represents a new kind of authority huh. that can manipulate market prices, well. which in turn will, will change how the security model of the protocol works. Because, mm -hmm. you know, if you can ma manipulate prices in a way that makes mining profitable or unprofitable in different kinds of ways, then you, it's, it's it's a strange attack vector that can do crazy things. I think for me what's interesting is that the way a lot of these things can be discussed in this space falls back on that logic rather than a kind of critique of economics, politics. That's really liberating actually to be able to get it, out in of... In some ways it's liberating, but, I, so, but the other thing that I wanted to mention was what's happening in this space is that the awareness of the different layers and the awareness of what matters is, is opening up. So where before there was such a focus on the protocol layer and then application layers and so on, governance became a thing, governance of the protocol. All of a sudden it was like, okay, we've solved centralization in the protocol, but we haven't solved centralization when it comes to who gets to decide what the protocol should right. be, right? So then governance, protocol governance became a thing. And then Wales, you know, centralization of wealth, the awareness of the different layers is, is growing, let's say. Yeah. But, in, but they matter in that weird way of like network security, decentralization, centralization, this kind of thing. Yeah, and I would just add that a lot of the kind of game theoretical problems that blockchain aims to solve are predicated on the belief that certain attacks on the system would be too expensive. So when you get a number of kind of concentration of miners or wealth, some of those problems uh, get easier to, to solve. I would like to make one observation from my perspective, which is that working in this space, I do notice that the what you might characterize as the kind of left have really vacated the space in a way that is unfortunate in my view. And it's because it feels like it's about money and it's about capitalism and it's associated with greed and it's associated with lots of things that the left are against, let's put it bluntly. And that has in some way kind of created a bit of a vacuum in the conversation and the debate around what we could be thinking about and doing. Yep. So I am always trying to encourage people to kind of just pay attention to what's going on so that we actually have much more diversity of perspectives and political views in the yeah. space. Yeah, there are certain words like money, markets, yeah. etc. that just like people They're immediately like, exit the room. Yeah. 
I think that is an excellent, excellent point. And I think probably the way that it's been remediated in the mainstream media has only amplified that image. And that's, uh, that's one of the other ways that organizations like your own mm. can help is putting a different kind of signal out there. Speaking to that point of there being a vacuum of the left, and as somebody that has been following sort of the, the, the alt tech space for quite some time, for two decades now, is there anything that you wish from Web1 or pre-Web1, BBS board, Logic, this time that you wish could somehow be reinstituted? Maybe that's a, a social connection that had been there, or maybe that is a very simple structure that you think would actually be very beneficial now for us to reinstate. I don't know. I mean, I, I do have a sense that there is in the decentralized web kind of ground ground growing up movement there seems I'm I'm getting a familiar vibe that was there in the early 90s and that makes me very hopeful because it's that plus the history of everything that went wrong so I kind of feel as long as we hang on to a historical sense that makes me feel more hopeful and we are seeing kind of communication across generations of people with a with a kind of dedication to the decentralized web when you think back though to the 90s was there one favorite interface or one favorite is there is there anything that you really miss from that time on a like a hardware or software i mean basis? the the one of the differences at the moment and i think it's a time thing between what it's like to work as an artist in the blockchain space than what it was like to work as an artist in the web space in the mid 90s is that it was really easy to make stuff and to share it and to publish it and to see how it lived on the web and it's not so easy yet to do that in but this space. Blockchain started to allow like these self-funded projects. It seems like everybody had this little moment where maybe they could start their their own thing. And but it's just it it's just the kind of level the the expressive media. Right. So it was easier to do things with image text, things that are kind of like our everyday language. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it wasn't a particular platform. It was the fact that we could build our own platforms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as artists, we could build our own platforms, and that was really important. The real estate thing again like could you just buy a place in Meta? you could just squat Meta. i mean right and yeah. now you know that it's i mean i, I taught myself i taught myself to make web pages in half a day yeah put a web page up post it to the web send people email told them to come look at it yeah so i didn't need anything i just right. needed a text document yeah. and a connection to the web in your research, Aya, I mean, you're thinking a lot about architecture, blockchain is a new kind of architecture. Is there anything in your research that you wish, like if we could, I don't know, somehow bring back some element that you think would be, or is that the wrong way to think about this? I'm not so nostalgic as yeah, a yeah, person. It is, yeah. So I don't know, it's a bit of a tricky question to answer. And maybe it's because the blockchain space is such a funny mix and maybe not entirely familiar in some senses. So I was, I was thinking a little bit about this when it comes to incentives, right? So there's this idea that like one of the reasons why incentive design in protocols is potentially an interesting thing is because it would allow decentralized infrastructures to scale in a way where because you need to kind of motivate strangers to contribute to the network, right? Mm -hmm. How are you going to motivate strangers to con contribute their resources to a network and keep it running for a long period of time? What was interesting about decentralized technologies in the 90s was you didn't need economic incentives to do that. It was kind of a little bit more like, you know, you'd have like a peer-to-peer -peer file sharing network that was like niche films, right? Mm -hmm. And so like there was there's a certain kind of, there, there were different motivations, like a, a much more varied space of motivations and reasons for why people would do things like that and come together as strangers on the internet on the basis of a kind of fascination for 
I don't know, a particular genre of film or, or music or whatever else. And that, I, I feel, is quite interesting. And that, so that makes me think a lot about what it is that tokens as a medium of supposed kind of generalized incentives does. And I say supposed generalized incentives because money, like I do, I do see tokens as a specific medium where you can have other incentives for why you want to get involved in a network, right? Yeah, so, medium rather than currency. It yeah, really, medium. Yeah. Um, and so, and mediums do things, they kind of shape interactions in specific ways and so when we're kind of I mean I think your idea of, to, of like trying to kind of like do a some kind of mapping of the different types of tokens the different types of currencies whether it's reputation systems or utility type stuff or securities type stuff or whatever else is like an interesting exercise and I think the follow-up to that would be something along the lines of how does it affect interactions mm. when you start using these as intermediators to attract people to a platform or not or as forms of gatekeepers or as you know how do you design these tokens in ways like what do they actually what do they do to the interactions between people yeah one of the things that was really heady about the kind of late 90s uh, platform building was that we were really consciously creating certain kinds of social relations amongst totally. people amongst people that we knew, had grown up with you know we, we were creating the space that we wanted to inhabit basically so I think paying attention to the kind of interactions and what people feel like when they're having those interactions is really interesting yeah and I would just add that now I mean there's certain things it's kind of a basic take but like things like likes and other things you can also think of them as like new mediums on the internet like governing our ways of interacting with each other on different platforms and also I think what blockchain calls into question and makes us think about more is being able to think about kind of we have this idea of political economy of how kind of wealth functions usually within a national border but now it's kind of becoming like mechanism design or incentive design on a very individual level so you get your own kind of feedback loops on the internet and like you see a ton of people are just getting driven to hysteria with their own feedback loops at the moment online and um, <laughs> and like and I think as things become kind of tokenized, whether it's a currency that actually has monetary value or not, um, matters less than like what kind of feedback loops and incentives it creates. So being able to be super clear from those and experiment with them from the start. You know, if you start like a thing with a group of friends where you're like oh, we'll track all of our work and our contributions to this thing, and then you can see how like this slightly kind of like evil surveillance work platform works, and you'll be like five years ahead of everyone when like your workplace institutes it. <laughs> um, just to, like stuff like that I think is really important to think about now um, in terms of how we navigate the web that we didn't have to think about, you know, 10 years ago. We think about a patchwork society too. I mean, you can imagine blockchain applications for, okay, well, here we use social media, what we call social media, this way, but in that state, they use it that way. And that there being micro, micro communities, uh, social media communities, I mean, I don't know, I'm sketching, but mm -hmm. like you could, you could really imagine this being practically implemented. In, in the future. Okay, maybe we can ask some questions, if anyone has questions or has, has thoughts to, to contribute to this. So I would like to ask from you, Jaya, because I know you've done a lot of work around this, but um, to ask if you can summarize in a very quick, generalized way, what you think the political makeup of blockchain and Bitcoin is. <laughs> and I know that's a really horrible question, but I think you're possibly the best person I know to answer it. 
there are some very good analyses of the cryptocurrency space and of blockchain and the politics of, of this space. Um, and very important uh, work has been done around that. One book is by David Columbia that talks about Bitcoin as right-wing extremism. And I think it's an important excavation of a lot of the kind of economic thinking that's fed into some of the protocol design. But I was frustrated by the kind of total lack of awareness of uh, other histories of decentralized technology that equally were drawn to Bitcoin and have taken part in developing the kind of blockchain space um, subsequently. Like if you come at this space purely from a kind of capitalism, anti-capitalism kind of perspective, I think you miss out on a lot of what's actually going on. Like the worry is not so much about whether capitalism survives or not. People are just not that concerned and it's not like the main focus of the project or the projects. You know, and when I say this, I don't mean specific projects. Like obviously there's projects in the blockchain space that are directly anti-capitalist and there's projects in the blockchain space that are, you know, would represent some kind of hyper-capitalist dream. But I'm talking about the core of what brings this together to form one space, really, politically in some senses. And that comes down to the relationship between decentralized uh, networks and conceptions of authority, really, that came out of the kind of 90s and the associated cultures that, were, that came with that, like the cypherpunks and so on. So it comes out of a kind of awareness of the fact that the internet was only going to grow and was only going to have uh, more and more impact on our lives and an awareness of what that might turn into, what problems might come about because of that in terms of privacy, in terms of network control and so on. And the political project was really to develop technologies that would be resilient to that. And I would just add one thing. It's, it would be really good, um, if you haven't read it recently, to go back to the Cypherpunk Manifesto. Mm -hmm. It's actually really, really good. And people always talk about the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. No, read the Cypherpunk <laughs> Manifesto. Um, it's really nice also because it makes super clear in the first couple of sentences that privacy is a collective social act for the social good. Privacy is not about kind of anonymity, but being able to choose when you reveal yourself. And it really makes clear privacy is a fundamental, almost human right and social good. So when often people kind of put the privacy, anti-state, libertarian label on blockchain, a lot of it is actually kind of formulated as a social good, as protection, as a collective act. And so returning to that text is a really good way to start kind of pushing that narrative I think the manifesto actually talks about privacy as a commons, yeah, which is really yeah. interesting. And talks yeah. about the f reputation systems being really important in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I was yeah. having a bit of a kind of funny chat with Ruth on the way over here, actually, because, you know, for all the kind of talk about disintermediation and creating systems that are going to destroy existing authorities and disrupt existing institutions and so on, there's a lot of, like, really funny interplay between institutions and decentralized networks and so on. And... Uh, one funny development is uh, the development of stable coins, right? So there's this idea that like, basically we figured out that volatility in the exchange rate of a cryptocurrency really goes against its utility, either as a kind of means of exchange for, as money, but also to run protocols and smart contracts and applications because you can't kind of predict how much it's gonna cost you, right? So you have, there is a bit of a problem um, in the space and, and there was th these intentions to create uh, stable coins. And stable coins, a lot of the proposals have been to kind of tether the to nation-based currencies that tend to be more stable than the cryptocurrency space. So like you have this funny thing of like, okay, this project of disintermediation that turns into this like crazy space of layer and layer and layer of intermediation where like you've got the banks, the financial system, the legal system, the judiciary, the whatever, like everything that's happening already, plus like 
all these kind of complicated protocols and, and networks on top of it. And the interdynamics between them are, can be mind-boggling sometimes, right? And, and I think, again, it comes back to this kind of, to some of the more fundamental questions of the nature of the disruption that was supposed to come about from cryptocurrencies, really, you know? So when you have a space that doesn't necessarily have a particularly strong idea of how a state works but wants to disrupt the state and state institutions, it starts to get muddled when, when, it, when it starts being implemented in reality, right? Yeah, I recently asked a group because the core tenant of um, a group of kind of activists who work in the Ethereum community want to articulate like a post-nation state politics. But it's like a certain failure to identify what a state does out of sight of what can be offered by software. <laughs> like certain things like, uh, like, you know, military might. And like bringing that up is like, you know, silence in the room. <laughs> and it's like, if you fail to kind of directly deal with that as a reality, as a function of the state for post-nation state politics, then there's something incredibly wrong. <laughs> like it has to be dealt with on kind of all terms, even the ones that you don't like. And I do think that software will take on most functions of states and decentralize a lot of kind of institutional capacities. Um, but there are certain ones that are incredibly structurally ingrained that would take generations and generations to change. And also, again, where you see like people actually dealing with structural power and violence is more on the right than the left directly now. And that's a shame. Mm. Um, I'd like to come back to your point about socialist aversion to blockchain because it does away with the state. I know that Jaya and I, sat in a conference a while back and listened to a number of entrepreneurial, I think they would describe themselves as left anarchists, proposing to build blockchain systems for the state to distribute social welfare. So there's actually no reason why blockchain systems cannot be used to implement any kind of politics, actually. It's just who invests in them. I mean, we were a little confused because this person was proposing a system in which you would only pay your grandmother to buy food rather than cigarettes and alcohol, <laughs> which was very odd, as a kind of uh, extended system of control. Sorry, just quickly, there's nothing inherently about a blockchain that makes it, you know, the state incapable of kind of incorporating it. I mean, I think what we also see is at a time when one's choices are very visible on platforms, like an aesthetic aversion to being involved with anything that is also associated with capital accumulation. Mm -hmm. And so you see people who, like, if they actually sat with it for a second, may find a better application, be like, I'm not associated with that because it's not something I want associated with my profile, my SEO, etc. Uh, during this time, hopefully we're past that. So I think there's a lot of strategic uses that can happen with blockchain, as long as you kind of keep in mind what exactly it is that you're trying to achieve with that strategy. But there is also a kind of funny inherent logic to the technology that creates some funny dynamics. You know, there used to be, there was a critique of intellectual property at the time, right? And, and a lot of it was about like, we're creating these fluid networks and they are different from the physical space. They're different from nation states. It's a new kind of space. And it's a space of fluid open networks of abundance because digital copies are infinitely copyable. And so, you know, the kind of, let's say, political justification for the kind of piracy movement at the time was, you know, that we have this digital space, knowledge is abundant, any imposition of scarcity is basically against the nature of cyberspace, to use a really old-fashioned word. So then I, but then I start to see how decentralized technologies in the blockchain space you know, it's like gone from, from pirates to police, is like <laughs> I like to put it, because it's gone from this kind of like total kind of like critique of intellectual property to defining, securing, enforcing property 
at an ever more fine-grained, precise manner, you know, you know, as, as much as possible, as, as detailed as possible, creating like layer and layer of access rights for your use rights or whatever else. Like, and, and it's a warning a little bit also. I feel like there is a lot of interesting things that can happen at this kind of network layer. Um, it doesn't need to replicate what the state is already doing. Right. Like, it does not need to do that. And it does not need to replicate what existing markets don't do either, right? right? So when we think about in identity systems or we think about, like, property or we think about, you know, we can think about them in different ways. It doesn't need to be just a replication of what we already have, but just in a decentralized... Like, it doesn't... For me, it's like the focus on decentralization has decentralized essentially the technologies of the state and the technologies of, of the market in ways where I'm like, that is a bit of a shame. I, let, let, is, there, is there more that we can do there? Is there something else we can do there? Is it a little bit like an art student who feels they need to first replicate what they already, what's already popular out there, and then they're able to extrapolate into their own style? Maybe it's something. Yeah, like no, that. that's quite a nice way of but, looking at it. But I also feel like you'd have to go to a few layers down to actually kind of define what that politics is and how it yeah. manifests itself, because you would need something like a philosophy of engineering that didn't rely on kind of name and ownership as basic semantic data for structuring programs. Like you would need to go like really kind of deep down, like in terms of like how you actually think about creating software that doesn't relate to access rights, because that's what all of computer science is like basically built on. It's access rights and good indexing functions. Um, and so you would really need like a new philosophy of engineering in order to actually bring about politics that isn't um, increasingly kind of miniaturized, incentivized data naming, which would be great. We should do that. <laughs> uh, this is a more a broader question, but since you're experts, I figured I might as well ask. I mean, it seems to me one of the reasons like the bubble of the market kind of popped and the narrative steam is kind of gone from blockchain right now is there's kind of been a lack of a killer app. Like there's been a lot of pets.coms and no Amazons. Um, do you, like what do you what do you think the closest to a killer app we might have right now besides crime? And uh, what? Uh, do you have a prediction for kind of what sector or it, what purpose a killer app using blockchain might actually emerge from that would get widespread adoption? Uh, crime is the killer, killer app. <laughs> One killer app for me would be around questions of privacy, really, and to solve some problems around privacy online. That would be a huge achievement that would be potentially, like, really transformative for the way the internet looks, feels, and operates, and also for the kind of social effects of the internet today. And I think that's like not just a killer app, that has to be like one of the main missions, really. I would say also things like Zcash have like official SEC approval now. So I think a lot of the things in terms of killer apps, there's still high transaction costs and other things. We'll see it primarily on like a foundational infrastructure layer and primarily related to financial infrastructure. And it will be to the point where it's probably embedded in quite a lot of the software we use, but we don't know that it's a blockchain software. And I think that's the thing in terms of looking to, to build dApps that might be a misnomer at the moment. I think like a proper dApp in the way that we would think of it being actually decentralized is still several years away. But as a foundational infrastructure, it's already very much embedded. And I think Zcash and other things related to kind of privacy online. And also if you Google ZK snarks, looking up stuff like that. Yeah, that's completely new and great. Zcash, um, Monero and NIM is the 
is a recent one that uses mixed networks. I don't have any kind of answer to that question, but I have a question that we haven't really touched on, which is, if we're thinking into the future, what do we see the relationship between blockchain and AI and things like control over data and where are the interesting interfaces there? What, what, what do we need to happen well in order for things to go uh, to produce something that isn't horrifying? <laughs> I mean, this is, for me, this is like work in progress. Like, I'm still trying to kind of understand AI in more detail and also try and understand the concepts around autonomy in more detail. And uh, again, this idea of autonomy as being something that is autonomous from humans, which is, it's a fascinating thought, it's a fascinating idea, but the ways in which it operates, and this is not to say that we're in control of the systems that we build, I don't believe it works that way, I don't think the world works that way necessarily, I don't think infrastructure, any kind of infrastructure really works that way, we're never fully in control. I'm, I'm still trying to understand kind of what, how control and autonomy work in relation to not just AI, but technology more generally, and especially network technology, where it's not in our inability to fully understand the system that we're out of control because we never fully understand things. We, never, we don't understand our own brain, right? It's not about that. It's something about the way we build things tend to be about tuning. So we, don't, we never fully understand things, but we do assess how they work. And if they don't work how we intend them to work, we tune them. So there is, there is an idea already behind the development before we even start development on whether it's AI or blockchain systems or interface between the two of them of what it is that we're trying to achieve. And so there is this kind of idea that somehow it's out of our control and there's these autonomous systems happening, but we're, we're actually tuning the systems, at, we're building the systems, and we have a certain idea of what we're trying to achieve with them. And so there's like something around that, that like something here around the tuning rather than full control or full autonomy. Yeah. Yeah, and I think most software being designed today should take into account that probably its main users will be bots and AI in five years. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly in the financial industry, most of that is algorithmic trading. So you could already think of um, kind of the financial industry as being an early AI kind of aggregator. So that would be on one level where I feel like it happens like gradually and then suddenly. Um, on a just kind of human understanding level, I also agree. And I feel like just developing kind of linguistic frameworks to think about AI and the kind of metaphors that we use related to AI are very important. And that would be out of scope to go too far on that, though. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm going to think as I speak here. This is really undeveloped stuff. But in relation to, like, high-frequency trading or the kind of use of, you know, like, bots speaking to each other and so on, it, again, it's like, so there's this, this, this feeling that that's kind of out of our control, you know, and there's large parts of how the financial system operates as a system that tends to be out of our control and go out of control. But the bots have been developed with something specific in mind, right? So like high frequency trading, we might not understand fully how it works or why it works, but we know what the intention is of why we're putting them into place, right? We're putting them into place in order to find that marginal profit at a trade in like the fastest, you know, so there's like a certain kind of operational logic that's already there. And I wonder whether that's like a point to look at when it comes to AI instead of just like this thing that's going to grow out of our control. Does that make sense? Yeah, you yeah. could put like the kind of objective and then there, I feel like where we get that misunderstandability is when you get into the feedback loop on that objective yeah. and the side effects that that has. Yeah. So like objectives and feedback loops and might scale. be good. Like, yeah, yeah, scale and time yeah. obviously plays yeah. a huge role, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, but value production in the culture sector, in the art space anyway, is 
predominantly a human relation. It's predominantly contingent on perception of human identity in, in a very irrational way often, or the relations between people and the image of power. I mean, it's not a rational system, right? So I think there is, and when there are all these, these different applications of, and sorry, I'm, I, please, please interrupt me if you have a, if you have a better application, but it, it just seems like such a mismatch when people talk about, I mean, I think you were saying in the beginning that there were you know, these applications of provenance and, and uh, of systems and, and, and different people in the blockchain space who are trying to do art consulting. And it just seems like it's such a clunky mismatch uh, because the human component, the, the, the human fallibility, the human desire, the human irrationality is actually part of, of the drama that creates the value in an art space. Not to be too romantic, but I just think that that's true. And yes, you can say the distribution of labor in a curatorial plan, but there's so many other micro-relations that go into putting any artistic production together that I don't think translates neatly to a blockchain system. So maybe that's fine. Also, it's fine. The whole world doesn't need to be... Yeah. One, one of the half-chewed thoughts I have in my mind about this stuff at the moment is around the future role of social provenance around artworks, where we start to see maps of interaction data between people talking about works and the kind of the critical and spreading role that they have and the way that the way all of this data can then be reprocessed as we find new ways to process data what and we produce do with value. That data then what we do with that we have this data but then what are we doing with it and why do we care about more data in this space yeah well also I'm, I'm just kind of mad because there's all these like art blockchain protocols that are coming out who literally don't have a function to give like a certain percentage of resale money to artists <laughs> and like that's the first thing you could just easily put that in the protocol that every time like a specific N nft is resold the artist gets a certain percentage of that resale cost mm -hmm. because often there will be like young artists work who's like you know sells for like a couple of k and then it's you know could be worth a million um you know later and they see none of that so just like simple things like this, I think that we're already doing it wrong in terms of how we're technically encoding what we would like to see change in the art market. In terms of what decentralizing the institution might mean, this is potentially a fairly privileged answer, but I feel like in the same way that in politics, there's kind of like a void of new thinking, like outside of like binaries or other things. I think in the art world as well, there's, there is a lot of energy that could find new islands of kind of interests and it doesn't have to look like normal art world things, um, but those things can kind of gradually be cut the media is accessible because you can just deploy things at relatively low cost. You can kind of bootstrap your own beginning institution if you see the right void at the moment, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I don't know if that's helpful. Yeah, I guess that's the thing that we're starting to explore with Culture Stake, which is like a little organisation that will run experimentally alongside us flesh and bone people on the ground to tell us something about what the relationship is between these people and eventually we'll start to be able to influence the way we act. But I've been really conscious also about the role of people in producing a shared vision that kind of needs to lead the process. And I keep thinking about this, like we're kind of like trying to solve everything from an infrastructural perspective, but we kind of need new ways to come together outside of these infrastructures and to be constantly, not, not rem remember not to be constantly led by kind of infrastructural limitations and to be looking to kind of reach outside of these things and then, and then try and shape the infrastructures more in our own, towards our, what we want. Maybe that's, that's a good ending point then. Thank you so much for coming and this first snow. Thank you to Ruth, Pikia, and Daya, Simon, Pichinkel.
Thank you for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Schenkel Pavilion and edited by New Models.